Chapter 10 of The Day's Journey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stella June. The Day's Journey by Netta Syrette. Chapter 10. The moment had come for which Robert, on that day at least, had scarcely dared to hope. He was alone with Philippa. He changed his seat for one nearer to her and looked at her ardently. Philippa returned his gaze with a smile of wistful tenderness. Renunciation, a burning sense of duty, tempered by potential passion, was expressed partly by the smile, partly by the direct gaze of her melancholy eyes. Robert acknowledged the former emotion with respectful admiration and arrived unacknowledged hope from the latter. Three months ago he had met Philippa Burton in the reading-room of the British Museum, and had made her acquaintance with a degree of unconventionality hereafter so frequently alluded to by Philippa as our beautiful meeting, that he had come to attribute to it something of mystic import, an indication of soul affinity. Regarded prosaically, the acquaintance had come about, much as very delightful and profitable acquaintances are made in a class of a considerably lower social grade than that to which either of them belonged. Robert had noticed and admired the dark-eyed, mysterious-looking girl who read at the table opposite to his own, had seized the chance of helping her with some heavy books, which she was lifting from the reference shelves, and the further opportunity of leaving the reading-room with her at the moment she had chosen for lunch. With that deliberate ignoring of foolish convention, of which sandals and freely exposed necks are the outward and visible sign, she had expressed her thanks with an impressiveness impossible to the silence of the reading-room, and a quarter of an hour later Robert found himself lunching with her at a vegetarian restaurant, suffering French beans gladly. He had met her at a critical moment, the moment when the last sparks of passion for his wife had died a natural death and he had begun to crave for a new interest in life. It was, so he expressed to himself, the prompting of a very ordinary instinct. Philippa had accepted the paraphrase with melancholy fervor, and had set about ministering to the requirements it indicated, after the manner of a priestess. She had promptly admitted Robert to her temple, an austerely furnished studio in Fulham, had given him tea out of cups, with no handles, and made the ceremony seem like a sacrificial rite. She had listened to the reading of his manuscripts, and called them blessed. She had discussed his wife, and called her a nice little thing. She had dealt in abstractions, such as honor, ennobling influences, the transmutation of passion into a religious flame to illumine and make life holy, and she had hitherto resisted, with grieved patience, all Robert's manlike relapses into a somewhat less rarefied atmosphere. Robert was naturally very much in love. "'I thought today would never come,' he murmured. "'Are you better? You've been working far too hard. Ah, you shouldn't. Another cushion?' Philippa accepted the cushion, but motioned Robert back to his place with gentle persistence. "'Not work,' she said, "'but I must.' How else should I live, though certainly sometimes I wonder why? It's then that I hear the river flowing. How quiet it would be, wouldn't it? What a sweet washing away of life's troubles and wearinesses, and mistakes, 
she fixed her swimming eyes upon a leafy branch opposite and spoke in an infinitely sad, deep voice. "'Don't, Philippa,' urged Robert, in distress. "'I can't bear it. You know how I want to shield you. You are not strong enough to battle with life. You know how I long to—' "'Ah, oh, my dear friend, don't!' she cried, smiling at him with trembling lips. "'We've discussed that, and you know I can't allow it. Don't make me regret having taken this beautiful holiday at your hands. I never thought you would persuade me, even to that, but you are wonderful when you plead, Fergus.' He took her hand and kissed it. She gently withdrew it. "'It sounds so strange to hear you called Robert,' she said. "'You are always Fergus to me.' "'It's a beautiful name, associated with beautiful work.' Her eyes dilated, and Robert wondered whether she was thinking of the scene between the lovers in The Magician, or of the moonlit terrace scene upon which he prided himself in The Starry Host, his last poetical drama, or perhaps of one of his little prose poems. Her expression called up agreeable reminiscences of nearly all his writing. "'I've been watching for you all the morning,' he told her. "'But that was very bad for your work,' she shook her head at him playfully. "'My work is always at a standstill without you,' she looked at him affectionately. "'Do you know I can't help being glad of that? It does show, I think, that your work is a bond between us in the highest and best sense.' He assented absently. "'Cecily read me your letter,' he added after a moment's pause. She waited for him to comment upon it. "'Was it right?' she asked at length, when he was silent. "'I kept strictly to the truth. I hate anything that's not absolutely sincere.' "'Yes,' he replied, dubiously. "'It was the truth, of course, but it gave her a wrong impression. She thinks we only met at Lady Wilmot's.' "'Isn't that what you intended?' there was a momentary ring of sharpness in her voice. "'Yes,' he returned, uncertainly again. "'Yes, I suppose so.' His face clouded for an instant. When he again sought her eyes, she was smiling indulgently. "'Fergus,' she said, "'don't you understand? If women were all fine and noble enough, there would be no occasion to withhold anything.' We could be quite frank about our friendships, knowing that they would not be misconstrued. But as it is, she paused. Well? As it is, while so many women are still mentally undeveloped, morally childish, truth must come as, well, as a progressive revelation. Robert laughed a little. I'm afraid it will always be a revelation, he said, a latent sense of humor for a moment asserting itself progressive or otherwise. Philippa did not encourage humor. "'I have greater faith,' she returned, with serious eyes. "'There are some great souls among women, Fergus, after all.' He was scarcely listening. Surely no woman ever had such wonderful hair as Philippa's. His hands ached to touch it, to feel it running through his fingers. He got up abruptly, and began to pace the grass plot as he had paced it that morning when he had been thinking of her. Now she was before him with her big velvety eyes, her marvelous hair, her long slender limbs. He realized presently that she was still speaking. "'I suppose it is fatally easy,' she was saying meditatively, "'for a married woman who has led a sheltered life to grow a little petty and narrow. After all, it is the worker, the struggler, who purifies her nature.' 
"'Don't you think so? "'But in time I think even the married woman may learn.' "'Learn what?' he murmured absently, "'throwing himself once more into the cane chair beside her. "'To love less selfishly,' she returned, looking down at him. "'To admit the value of every ennobling friendship. "'A friendship such as ours, Fergus. "'What can it mean but good? "'Good for both of us. "'Good for her, too, if only she would take it so.' she added softly. Robert made a restless movement. The spell of her presence was somehow broken. He felt worried, exasperated, angry with himself, almost angry with Philippa. She expected too much of human nature, certainly too much of his. "'But as a matter of fact, you can't get a woman to take it like that,' he exclaimed, in spite of himself. "'Consider our case, if you like,' he added in an injured tone, what woman would believe in mere friendship if she knew we had met? How often? Nearly every day, as a matter of fact, for the last three months? It isn't in human nature. He spoke almost irritably, prompted by an undefined notion that, having put such a strain upon any woman's credulity, it was ridiculous not to have justified her disbelief. For a moment he wished Philippa had been a less noble woman. She sighed. "'Then I suppose you are quite right not to tell her,' she said, descending abruptly upon the personal pronoun. "'Your idea is to let her grow used to our friendship, here in the country, under her eyes, so that she may gradually come to believe in its purity?' Robert felt a little nonplussed. He had thought this particular idea emanated from Philippa herself, but as she spoke of it decidedly as his, she must have no doubt that he had suggested it. In any case, it was scarcely chivalrous to undeceive her. "'Perhaps you are right,' she murmured after a moment. Presently, as Robert watched her, she smiled, slowly, indulgently, as a mother smiles at the waywardness of a little child. "'How charming Cecily is,' she said. "'She always appealed to me, even as a schoolgirl. I always wanted to protect her in some way. She was so fragile, so sweet. She had very little character.' as a child, I mean, but then she was so graceful, so lovable, one scarcely missed it. Robert was silent. He felt vaguely uncomfortable. Oh, what a pity, what a pity, she exclaimed softly after a pause. There was the tenderest commiseration and regret in her emotional voice. Robert felt his heart stirred painfully. He wanted to kiss her dress, but refrained. What is a pity? he asked in a low tone. "'That she doesn't understand you, Fergus.' "'She thinks she does.' "'Ah, yes, that is the tragedy.' "'Oh, we all have them,' said Robert lightly. She leaned a little towards him. "'At least I do that, Fergus. Understand you?' Her voice, still low, was tremulous. He seized her hands. "'As no one has ever understood me,' he cried. "'Philippa, no, don't move, don't. I must tell you. I can't—' She struggled to loose her hands, and he released them. When she was free, she moved a little away from him, to the other end of the bench, and sat motionless, her eyes fixed on the ground. Robert was abashed. He had angered her. He did not know how deeply. He hesitated. "'Philippa,' he whispered at last, "'you are angry?' "'Not angry,' she returned almost at once. "'But disappointed, Fergus.' "'More than once you have promised not to let that kind of thing happen again.' "'I know,' he began humbly, "'but—' 
"'What were we talking about?' she asked in a studiously quiet tone. "'I don't know,' admitted Robert, with truth. His head was in a whirl. "'About you, I expect,' she returned, with no trace of sarcasm. "'Yours is a very finely strung temperament. It requires the sympathy that comes of insight. Now if Cecily would only—' She paused, as though hesitating to criticize. "'Cecily surprised me a good deal the other day.' he said suddenly. I meant to tell you. Oh? Her voice grew slightly cold. How? I shouldn't have thought her a woman of many surprises. Robert broke off a twig from an overhanging hazel, snapped it, and threw it away before he spoke. She accused me of being tired of her, said she had no wish to stand in my way. No, in answer to her sudden inquiring look, she brought no accusation. She has heard nothing of our, our friendship. It was just a whim, I suppose. But I've taken her at her word. Her eyes held his. You mean... She wished that we should be friends, he returned, with a shrug of the shoulders. We shall be friends, henceforth. Before he could analyze the expression which leaped to her eyes, she had averted her head. I am sorry, she whispered softly. There was a long pause. "'Is Mr. Maine an old friend of hers?' Robert started. "'Yes,' he returned, reluctantly. "'She has known him since she was a girl of seventeen or eighteen. "'I asked him here,' he added with an effort. "'Philippa turned an illumined face towards him. "'As a lesson in generosity? I see.' "'She regarded him as the angel who holds the palm branch "'might regard the soldier saint who had earned it. "'That was splendid of you, Fergus.' Involuntarily, he put out a hand as though to revert her words. "'I thought it was only fair she should have someone to talk to,' he said, trying to speak carelessly and annoyed that the words sounded like a self-justification. "'Oh, I hope she'll see it as you meant it, and be worthy of it,' cried Philippa, almost as though it were a prayer. "'But, Fergus, you mustn't be surprised if she doesn't,' she added with regret. "'Cecily, you know, is vain.' I remember that of her as a striking characteristic from our school days. She's so charming, so lovable, but she's weak, Fergus. Poor Fergus, she murmured. I wish I had the right to comfort you. The breeze fluttered her mysterious hair. In the soft green gloom, flung by the trees, her eyes looked like forest pools for depth. She sighed, and the roses on her breast rose and sank, wafting an intoxicating perfume. Robert's heart beat so quickly that he could scarcely speak. He flung himself onto the grass and leaned against her knees. "'You have! You must! I don't want comfort! I want you!' he whispered incoherently. "'Philippa, it's ended between me and Cecily. She doesn't love me now. I don't love her. I can only think of you. Listen, listen, darling, I can't go on talking about friendship any more. I love you!' He put both arms round her and held her, held her while at first she resisted. But only for a moment. She grew suddenly, rigidly still. He threw back his head, still holding her, to look into her face. She was pale, but she gazed at him mysteriously, with a sort of religious ardor. "'Speak to me, Philippa,' he begged. "'Is it really, really so, Fergus?' she whispered. "'The great love, the perfect union?' "'You know I love you,' he said, beginning to realize that this was surrender, 
but that Philippa must do it in her own way. "'I think it would be right for us, Fergus. I feel it would be right,' she added, with the conviction of a mystic who has received a sign from heaven. "'Conventions? Laws? They are for little people. Great love is its own justification.' The phrase struck Robert as familiar. But what did phrases matter? She was yielding. "'You love me, then?' he urged, trembling." "'Yes, Fergus,' she said in her low, vibrating voice. "'Yes, it is love, and I didn't know it. "'You have revealed me to myself.' "'He kissed her passionately. "'Call me by my own name,' he said, "'rising still with his arm about her "'and drawing her to her feet. "'Dear Robert,' she murmured "'as he rained kisses on her hair. "'He was standing with his back "'to the narrow archway cut in the hedge "'and her face was hidden against his shoulder.' It was at that moment that Cecily and Maine reached the entrance to the yew garden. For one second, Cecily stood motionless. Then without a word, she moved on past the narrow archway and continued walking parallel to the hedge on the outward side. Maine followed her, embarrassment for the moment so strong within him that there was no room for any other emotion. Cecily did not speak. She and Robert had loved the yew enclosure better than any other part of the garden. All the times they had sat there together came before her now. She saw them as a drowning person is said to review the scenes in his past life. She saw the sunshine on the grass on hot summer afternoons. She smelled the roses. She thought of moonlit nights. She remembered one night, soon after their marriage, moonless but full of stars, when she had sat with Robert on the bench under the hazels. All at once she turned to Maine. "'I shall find my armor useful,' she said in a clear, steady voice. "'Thank you so much for recommending it. "'We can get into the house at the other door.'" End of chapter 10 Recording by Stella June